people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. This episode's a little different. We are talking about a movie that has yet to be. I'm talking with producer Ann Brandstein all about the documentary The Girl Who Would Be King, which she is currently working on. It is about Ann Beats, who is one of her best friends, one of Eve's best friends. And Ann is the creator, or was the creator, of Square Pegs. She passed away two years ago, and Eve is now in the midst of making a documentary about Anne. You get to hear about Eve and Anne in this episode, and I hope it whets your appetite for what The Girl Who Would Be King is going to be all about. If you want to keep up on the production, I suggest you go over to evebranstineproductions.com where you can hopefully find out more about it. And of course, I will keep you up to date as well as we move forward with the production. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Can you tell me about your background? Because you've done so many interesting things. Professionally, I came to Los Angeles after being a theater director in New York around 1979. And I went to work with Norman Lear pretty much as my introduction into the community here. It was an excellent opportunity, and I was lucky also. And I then became a filmmaker through the AFI program. I'm an alumni of AFI's program. I made a few of my young films there. Perhaps skip and jump. I became the head of casting for Norman Lear's companies, speaking of the movies and the TV shows, and was a great opportunity, great career. It wasn't really what I was set out to do. I wanted to be in directing. I was doing that as theater director now being a filmmaker through AFI and wishing and hoping to be a filmmaker, but I still love television. I fell deeply and badly in love with TV. The way you could start something and finish something like that, you come up with an idea, you shoot it, it was to me the miracle. And meanwhile, movies, years and years. So I worked with television for a long time, and then I graduated into what I wanted to do at the leader companies, and I became a producer. And I produced a series, a few pilots, but finally a series that went on the air at CBS called ER. Now, mind you, it's not the ER, but I introduced George Clooney to the world in the first ER, which starred Elliot Gould and Conchata uh, Farrell and Mary McDonald, a great cast. And it was based on a, a show I had seen in Chicago called ER. Anyway, later on, George wound up on another ER. And so it was the beginning of a friendship and working with George. Anyway, I wrote a book called The Actor, A Practical Guide to a Professional Career. And then I started just producing and writing. Then I met up. What I had done, though, is that a few pilots. And then I was invited to go over to Castle Rock. Now, it didn't go right away because obviously... The guys who started Castle Rock used to be all part of Norman Lear. Then days it was Columbia Television, whatever. So I had to wait a year, and I went off and joined them as a producer. 
And lo and behold, Anne Beats, who I had met in 1981, when I cast her series, Square Pegs, and I was in awe of her. She was an amazing character. What a character she was. Oh, my. Anyway, I loved working on Square Pegs. But now I jumped the gun on that because that's a very important place for you to edit <laughs> as a filmmaker. Go back and pick up Anne. Anne and I became friends in, during the Square Pegs era. She was astounding, brilliant, and I was in awe of her background. She had just come from SNL, which I was a fan of. And then we had a fabulous time, and the show didn't last much more than a year. And then I went to Castle Rock, and sure enough, I had optioned a project called Julie Brown, The Show. Now, in what I'm seeing press release recently, they have the wrong show down. It was Julie Brown, The Show, which was a TV pilot that we did. And Castle Rock asked me to see if I would join forces with Ann Beats. And so that's when our partnership, we became a company basically through that association. And we produced this phenomenal pilot. You can see some pieces of it on YouTube, <laughs> but it was ahead of its time. It was a show within a show. Having done in my casting career, one of, I think, one of the most unique open shows was a show called Fernwood Tonight. And because Fernwood Tonight was such a unique show, I stole some of my best ideas from it, which was to do that same kind of deadpan where doing a show. And Julie was a show within a show. Julie Brown, the show. Later on, Gary Shandling did the same show on the air and stayed on forever. But the concept of doing that sort of satirical sitcom was something that Anne and I worked on for that. And then we were invited to go over to Stephen J. Cannell's company as a team. We wound up finding out we worked really well together. We started a company called B-Girls Productions, and we went to the Cannell company to be the head of their comedy department, and we wrote tons of scripts for them. And we had, I think we did a couple of pilots, and this went on and on. We had an amazing association. And so from that point on, life keeps growing. We kept doing things on and off for many years and worked on several TV movies. And then we did a John Waters show that we also both directed called John Waters Presents Movies That Will Corrupt You. <laughs> and we spent time with John and we did so many things. It was a great 40 years. 40 years. When it comes to the Julie Brown show, was that just the name of the character or was it one of the many Julie Browns that is out there? It was the Julie Brown, what they called Uptown. She was the redhead who did Earth Girls Are Easy, clever comedian and good singer. And so the show was about her having her own show. It was like a, a musical talk show. And we had a live band on stage, which was built on these guys that I knew, the Sales Brothers, it was Soupy's sons, who eventually were our garage band, including Brian Ray, who is now Paul McCarthy's guitar player, and the Sales Brothers, and it was supposed to be a garage band. So we had, quote, the garage on stage, and they played her on and off and played some of her songs, and we had a live audience, and it was goofy. And then she had a backstage life, which was chaotic, as you could imagine. And that was a very cute pilot. Like I said, some pieces of it are on YouTube that you can see, but that was that Julie Brown. And now she's doing an ongoing character that she created at one point called Medusa, 
which is a spoof on Madonna. And the recent stuff she's doing, if you check it out, is hilarious because she's Madonna, who is now an elder. It's based on some of the humor that Madonna is trying to change her image. But anyway, I don't really want to get into that too much, but it's very funny. She's very funny. And again, you can see that stuff. I've never really talked to a casting person, and I'm so curious, what is your... What's your modus operandi? How do you figure out who's going to be good for stuff? Because I know, like you said, you worked with Castle Rock. You've casted so many things that I love, like Spinal Tap or Sure Thing, just great films. How do you start off? I came out here to be a filmmaker, and I needed a job, and I got this job in casting by accident. I needed a job. Someone offered me an opportunity to work at was then TAT Tandem Productions, the old TV company. And I didn't want to take the gig at first. I thought it was to be like a clerk in the casting department, meaning I fill out contracts and then I go down to the set and I get people to sign their contract. It was all like simple contracts. They were all date players. So even if you were a movie star, you had to sign a cheap contract. But So I was there for three days and it was really a, a crazy scene. There were actors coming and going and it was a show called Fernwood Tonight, which had not aired yet. And they were putting together characters that could do improv and could create reality in this sort of heightened state. And there was Martin Mull and Fred Willard were already on board. And Norman was still looking for more talent for it, but the place was a mess with it. And the gal who was the casting director was on the verge of like really a breakdown. Serious. She was overwhelmed. Because I had a history of knowing what I was doing with actors, she asked me to work on the filming or the taping was taped in another room. And I did it. I loved it. It was like, I don't have to do a desk job. I'll go do this. It was great. And so that was, I think I started on a Tuesday. Now comes Friday. It's before Memorial Day weekend. She has a meeting with Alan Thick, Norman Lear, everybody in a room to have a conference because over the weekend, they're going to have actors coming in all weekend to try doing shtick with Martin and Fred. She comes back, I think her name was Cheryl, and she had just done the children's, what she did, the, she put together the Mouseketeers at that year. She came back in and she said, just want to announce, we were all sitting around, a few other assistants, I just quit. And she points to me and she said, well, I recommended you for the job. Wow. I, I go, what? I have no idea what this means. Within a few minutes, the phone rings, and it was Al Burton, who was a VP under Norman, saying, Eve, we'd like to see you over here at the executive offices. And I, we, was, we were at a small studio space. I, it was a TV studio. And I walked across the lot going, the heck? And I go in this room, and there's Norman Lear. He was my hero, right? He's in the room, and so are these other executives. And Alan said, who I became very good friends with, and they tell me what I'm going to do going to take over. <laughs> We're going to give you a raise. And they go on and on. And we'll talk to you after the weekend because we need you here all weekend to help make sure this goes well. And then we'll talk about maybe giving you an opportunity to stay at a certain level and we'll bring someone else in. So I went, okay, here we go. And I rolled up my sleeves. I spent the entire weekend doing what they needed. Pain Tuesday morning, they get called in again and they go, We've decided you're really good at this and you should take the job. And they gave me another raise. Uh, I was now the head 
this show I was the casting. That's how I got into casting. It's almost as good as Lana Turner at the counter <laughs> at Schwab's. I felt like I was like a star. Also, I got a star is born. Anyway, and that's how I got into casting. And I figured it'd be this show, and then it went on and on. I became a vice president there. I started developing shows for them. It was a home that very few people had the fortune to work in because Norman was very, and the company itself reflected this desire to really have a good time making shows and have quality. And I used to call it the Montessori School of Broadcasting. It was like, play school, but you were doing great stuff. And we did so many good shows. And yes, I did Spinal Tap during that era. And when the company expanded, they opened, they became a film company as well. And uh, that was it. That's how I got into casting. It was one of those fortuitous moments, but you got to be ready and you have to say, yes. <laughs> That's like my advice to people when they say, what do I do? I go, Debbie, just keep going. And take all kinds of jobs. Don't go, oh, I can only do this. That's something I find very, there's a legitimacy to that. I didn't take that path. That's for some people. It's not, it wasn't for me. I didn't come from the background that gave me that much, I would say, privilege. I didn't feel privileged enough to say, oh, I only want to write. Oh, I only want to act. Or, you know what, I didn't ever want to act, but I only want to direct. You have some people who are committed to that. I didn't feel privileged enough for that kind of idea. So I've always switched off in my career towards, I'm making more sense of it because I'm older now. <laughs> and I see the path I've been on, which is where I wound up now is exactly based on what I just said. I went where the door was open and I gained other strengths so that now I am primarily involved in production and in directing and I can be more selective about where I want to put my time and energy. So you said you worked with Ann Beats for 40 years. What was that working relationship like? Yeah. Good. It was a good relationship. It was really good. I miss her very much. Yeah, I miss her very much. It's only two years. I'm actually having dinner with her daughter tonight. Anne was one of a kind. There was very many people I could say, she's one of a kind. She was remarkably funny, really smart, whip smart, and unique. Her ideas and her takes on things and her humor and her kindness. She was very kind. When she cared about you, you really felt close and good. She was very much the other side, too, with certain people. And she's also remembered for her, what I call prickly, sense. she could be tough. She was very tough and bitter bittersweet. She was, she had those moments. But if you were in her circle, she was a lamb, but she could be a lion out there. She had to be. She was the, she was exceptional in that she had the nerve, if you will, to get into a business that there were no other women at the table, literally. And I always admired that. She had that. I had it too, obviously, based on the choices I was making, but she just moved right into it. And when she was working, and her first gig was that was prominent. She was a very exceptional student as a child. She like got into college at sixteen and went on to went to McGill. Her mom has Canadian status, so she went to a Canadian school. And then she was with Michelle Choquette, who was a writer, and he got invited to come down to the National Lampoon. 
And as Anne says, I got into the comedy business the same way that Catherine the Great became the queen on my back. <laughs> so she had many very interesting lovers. <laughs> and then she got to National Lampoon. She was the only woman at first, and then they added some. She did tremendous work there, which we're going to explore in our movie. She did some really great ads. She did a lot of writing for them. And in the interim, she decided that it was there was not enough women involved, and she wanted to do something about women's humor. She had a real conviction that women were funny, not just recently. They didn't just become funny the last 15 years or 10 years in history. And she put her book together called Titters, which is a very famous cover where it just shows a girl's boobs in a sweater. But And Lynn Goldsmith, the fabulous photographer, did that, and she was one of the females in Anne's life that she promoted. Anne always brought women around, and she always believed that women were funny and that they had a sense of humor, and they were smart, and she was a trailblazer in that sense. And so she was with Michael O'Donoghue, and her became boyfriend and girlfriend. And there's a movie, I don't think you've seen the movie about the lampoon and about Doug Kenny. Oh, yes, yeah. What was it, like stone crazy? It's got like a whole bunch of adjectives. Natasha Leone played Anne in the movie. And I, and Anne met with her and everything. And so Anne said, she was great. She said, the only thing that I don't get is why she's smoking. I never smoked. <laughs> so yeah, she had a persona that you could hang a lantern on. You could say, look, here's a light for women. And so she went from the National Lampoon Michael O'Donoghue was invited by Lord Michaels, come on over to this new show I'm doing called Saturday Night Live. And he said, I'm going to bring my girlfriend. She's brilliant. And he had heard about her already. So he said, fantastic. So Anne winds up now at SNL. And she was the girl in the room again. This time she was partnered with Rosie Schuster, who was Lauren's wife and was a writer. Mind you, I don't want to, I don't want to make that her title. She was a writer who was married to Lord Michaels. And by the way, the daughter of a comedy duo called Wayne and Schuster. They were a comedy duo. So Schuster was Rosie's daddy. So she came from a comedy background. And anyway, so she worked with Anne and they did five years together on Saturday Night Live, got the Emmy and the whole thing. And then Anne wrote this and finished Titters, by the way. In fact, she was turned down doing SNL at first because she said, I'm doing this book called Titters. Anyway, obviously she put time into that, but took the gig. I'm sorry, she really almost said no. But in the meantime, she wrote a personal pilot called Square Pegs. And it's basically about her early middle school years, meaning because she was so advanced educationally, she was like a little nerdy girl who thought everybody else was fabulous. And the show again, ahead of its time, I say that John Hughes must have seen it because after that he did all his movies, including Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink. It was suddenly teenagers could be a little bit less than perfect. And the story was about those outsiders. And then later, of course, there is Freaks and Geeks. But Anne, again, did something that was so original that you saw kids, and plus the production dynamics on that. This music track was some of the hippest music you could find. She had the waitresses do the theme song. She had Devo on. 
she had a vision that nobody was doing in television. And that was at CBS. And she got a year and then they canceled it. It's a little bit of a cult thing now. But we had a great time doing it. No. And so that's, we originated our relationship around that. And then onward. She did a bunch of Broadway stuff too. She was the book writer for the leader of the pack. And then she did Gilda's show, the one woman show for Gilda. And on SNL, she and Rosie really did a lot of Gilda's material. And they created the nerds and refrigerator pet repairman. They did a lot of their stuff. And Anne, again, continued to write on her own. And then I met her. And then what else can I say? She was a fabulous friend. I loved working with her. We laughed a lot. And we kind of, our journey as writers was really how I feel we should live our life. We worked hard, but we had fun. And we decided to make writing. Not only, we made it an opportunity to do things that most people probably don't do, all they do. We used to go on vacation and write. We used to go, we'd rent a hotel room for the weekend and go downstairs and use the pool. And one of us would sit at what was then an old-fashioned computer. One of us would sit at the computer writing. The other one was in the pool swimming and giving, throwing ideas out. (laughs) So we had this original way of working. We So it was fun. It was great. And we worked Sometimes I was on the board, sometimes she was on the board, sometimes ideas, then we would fashion it, and then we would refine it, and then we would put it down, and I would look at it. We'd always work on a connecting computer, and I would read it, or she'd hand me it, and I'd look, and then we'd fix it, and that's how we worked. We worked very much, our minds were very hooked up. It was really a very, it was such an easy way to write for me. The only thing that she used to bother me about was my grammar wasn't so great, or my spelling. Her dad was a teacher. So whenever she was correcting stuff, I would go, and her father's name was Pat. I'd say, oh, Pat Beats is here. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I know her family. I know her sister, her nieces. And and of course, I was around for her when she brought Jaylene home. And and she was a great mom. A great. I think that was her greatest production, was her daughter. Gutsy woman. You mentioned the movie. Can you talk a little bit about what you're planning on doing and why now? She died two years ago, very suddenly. I was literally texting with her the day before, and it sounded like there was no reason to be concerned. She had a sciatica condition that kept her bedridden, so to speak. She couldn't really move very easily. So we had a few laughs, but I'm not going to mention them here. <laughs> Maybe it'll be in the movie. I don't know. But she, I got a phone call at 1.30 in the morning from her daughter, and I was in New York, and this happened in L.A. And she lives. She lived up the street from me. We lived on Doheny, up the street from each other. Anyway, so the passing was very intense for me. We had just finished writing another project, which the association with Solaris, who was doing this movie, came from Aunt. She brought me in to meet with the Solaris group on a project we were doing called Funny Boys, which is about the early days on National Lampoon about the girl who comes to New York in a suit and a little suitcase and walks into Mayhem. I say I described it as a show that when Mad Men ended on Madison Avenue, there was a new man coming. Instead of a suit, tie, and a hat, they wore jeans, a t-shirt, and a baseball cap. <laughs> and instead of martinis. <laughs> 
sex, drugs, rock and roll. Anyway, she and I, I'm in the same category of that era, although my experiences were different in terms of where I was working. I was doing theater. She was doing SNL. We we managed to put together a show about a woman coming to a comedy show, which was going to be basically the lampoon. And then Michael Bloom, who is involved in this project through his company, optioned it. And we finished writing up a very intense, very almost complete scripted, I think, a lot for the show. And two weeks, that was two weeks. And then she died two weeks later. And it was very sudden. And so that's two years ago. To answer your question a little better is why now? Why not? I think this is a good time to reflect on who she was. It's a little bit of time. And by the way, hear her in my head going, come on, let's do this. She loved being Ann Beats. <laughs> it's not like she wasn't planning for a legacy. She was. I don't mean that like superficially, but she knew somewhere that she signed every single book she ever bought or was got with her name. Who does that? Unless someday somebody's going to make a movie about you. It wasn't because she was afraid that someone's going to steal it. <laughs> it was like she... There were things that I knew about her that she was establishing her name and her value. And I hope that this allows that. And also, her daughter didn't get to spend enough time with her mom. She was only 18 at the death. And uh, it's time for also, I think, for everybody to get a, a taste of what this woman was. And uh, I want to do it. Michael brought it up. And I said, yeah, I'm in. I want to do it. And I also want to protect who she is. And a few years ago, there was a cover story. I think it was, it was Vanity Fair. And it said, women are funny. You can look that one up too. It's that cover where it's Tina and Amy and a bunch of other comedians. And they were doing this whole article about how women are finally funny. And Anne, a week or the next issue, wrote, excuse me, she wrote a letter to the editor, which they published. And that's also part of it. I'm going to try to pull that from the archives for this where she said, excuse me, when did women start to be funny? And then she berated them for saying it without mentioning the four ladies, the four fathers, the four mothers of comedy, that there were women who were funny. And one of the other things that Anne and I worked on, so that in terms of why do I want to do it, I also hope that some of the other archival materials that she created, and certainly the a lot with me, a lot, we can look at and take advantage of. And there was another project that I hope will follow this one. It's called The Girl in the Room, which is interesting because the, the movie's title now is The Girl Who Would Be King. The Girl in the Room was done as an example of women in comedy throughout time. And we did get some formidable interviews. We did, She and I did one, but I don't know how much we can use that. But we can use Phyllis Diller, Joan Rivers, Penny Marshall, as just examples of some of the people being interviewed and got on tape, made a sizzle, and hopefully someday that could be a very big project for us. Do on behalf, and I have another partner on that, and we never got to finish it, so to speak. So after Anne's finishing Square Pegs, along comes a whole bunch of other women producerized because she was the first of that level. She had she ran her own. She was a showrunner, which is rare. She ran her show. And then later, we worked on the Stephanie Miller show together. She ran that show. 
So she's always been a showrunner, which is phenomenal for a woman. Susan Harris, of course, follows in that she came on after Designing Women, name escapes me, but it was a that was a couple too. But anyway, there are women, and now you see many women who are showrunners. It's, it's an avalanche, finally. Not an avalanche, but a little more down the mountain or up the mountain, right? How do you even approach doing this documentary on, obviously, one of your best friends, your working partner of so many years, to take somebody's life and try to condense it down into an hour and a half, two hours? We have to figure out, and I think we're talking about this a lot, which is like your question, why now and why? And it's about her legacy as an original, an OG, <laughs> and she was that. And also coming from what the era was, what is it that takes a little girl who wants to be the king? She didn't want to be the sideline storyline. And she has a funny backstory. And there's some very funny stories about her as a young woman that will be inspiring and entertaining. The thing about doing something that on documentaries for me, and I do them now, this is my pleasure, and I have more of a passion for it than scripted, is that I want to entertain. So my approach to this, and I think I mentioned it to my colleagues on this, and I really feel that this is a unique place for storytelling, is not just to do a documentary. I would like to do a memoir for her. Like, she always wanted her to write her memoirs. And she has some several pages, and I'm hoping with Jaylene's help, we're going to get a hold of these pages. They're in her computer, obviously. She was right going to, in her years to come, she was planning on doing her memoir. And I don't know, I think I just finished a feature that's out now, getting distribution deals and all that. And that was the same approach I had on the Lost Weekend, the love story, was I wanted to do May Pang's memoir of that time versus just document. I wanted a story to go on. So for me, the story of Anne is this character who came up in an era when girls wore the right clothes and a girdle. You wore a girdle. <laughs> and women were like subservient. They were second. They were second. And you, the way you got into the business was on your back, so to speak. But you're the whole vision of your future as a young girl was, yeah, maybe you'd get a job as a school teacher, but the idea was you were going to find your mate and have children and live a very traditional story or life. And here she was. She had the nerve not to just do it that way and create, I think, a world that women can step into now. They don't think about it anymore. They don't. They're going to be script writers. They're going to be producers. They're directors anything goes, cinematographers in the industry. And then, of course, I think now there are more women doctors than there are men. I think. I'm not sure. Maybe not the specialty, but you know what I'm saying? It's like the door opened. Now, she wasn't in other fields, but in comedy, I think she she gave not only the idea that it could happen to others, but she also was a very loyal woman to other women. She hired most of her staffs who always had women on it. It was very important to engage in that. I really like that distinction of memoir versus documentary. That's very crucial. I think that's going to be my thing. I think that's what I want to do. I want to do memoirs. I like that approach. I like hearing, and we have a lot of footage. She speaks a lot. She did a lot of interviews. 
So we can really allow her to live in this film as well as tell about it. And I, I don't have a final say on how, if we're going to have another outside narrator, we might. But I'm more inclined to let the story tell itself. When I did Lost Weekend, there is there are no except for the except for Julian Lennon, nobody of present day is visible until the what I call the fifth act or the last act, and then you see what seventy looks like <laughs> instead of seeing a bunch of seventy year old people talk about John Lennon. Like we interviewed like Alice Cooper, we kept him in the dark. <laughs> There was a lot of voiceovers from people. We identified them, but I didn't want it to be seen. I thought it would be challenging to stay with the story so that you were with the time it was going on versus interrupting it. But that's my own taste. I like it. I got that in. I was inspired by the Amy Winehouse film, which was like a, definitely a biography, but it was very, you didn't see anybody except her father. Everybody else was voiceovers. And I like that approach. I like the storytelling. And I also, like I said, the memoir of it, that it feels like you get intimate and you feel what was that person going through and what was it like for them. And I know that I made it sound like everything was great. But the truth is, Anne had a lot of women who go through the life that he experienced, a certain loneliness and a certain, how do you get through this? Sometimes you want to have a partner. Sometimes you do want sort of traditions, and then you made a choice, right? It seems to be something where we can now have documentaries that are being, or films, I should say, that are being narrated by the subject, which is great. And sometimes it works really well, and other times you get those creepy things like the fake Anthony Bourdain voice that was AI-generated. I think it's being the person so close to her. I and she's not here to tell it, I feel like I know how to create what I call the emotional truths of her in a way that just documenting her life through archives and telling that, obviously, the chronological story of a life can't be done. I hope for that. That's what I hope for, is that I can talk about how certain things crushed her and that she kept going. You know what I mean? Something about her will and something about, yeah, something I identify with too. You go on a path in life, you don't know where you're going to wind up. And her death was a big wake-up call for me. Wait, huh? We're supposed to get the old ladies together, right? <laughs> I'm supposed to be doing what they did at the end of Mrs. Maidsell. We're supposed to be watching TV in two cities laughing. Hence, it changed me a bit. It did. Oh, yeah. This almost sounds like you... You lost an arm or something because she was such a part of you. Yeah, I don't know. I find writing very hard right now. It's I'm so used to writing with a partner that a little frozen. I don't know. It'll may come back. I'm hopeful, but if it doesn't, it's okay. I I've got a lot of. I am working on my own memoir, but <laughs> I'm not going to wait. <laughs> I'm not going to wait for someone else to write it, so to speak. But yeah. It's great. And I'm very happy that I get to talk about her. It makes me feel better. It does. It's bizarre. Would you indulge me? And whether happy or sad, can you tell me one of your favorite and beat stories? We were very close. And we have monosyllabic names, right? Anne, Eve. Everybody mixed us up. Everybody. They call her Eve and me Anne. So she was coming to my house one day to work. 
she knocks on the door. I go to the door and I go, who's there? She goes, Anne, it's Eve. <laughs> she called herself me and she called me her. And I went, Anne, this is insane. I opened the door. I said, they just got this in reverse. Even she confused herself. But that was one funny. Another time, I would say one of my happiest or funniest member. We just did silly shit. The BBC came to interview us to see how you write a television show. And we were sitting on opposite ends of tables with our computers working. And they were filming us. We call it, hey, shoot our feet. <laughs> you see our feet dancing. And then one time after we did a pilot production, we went to a French little restaurant and we got drunk. We did a lot of drinking together. And we danced on the table. So good. She always brand, we used to bring that up. Remember when we danced on the table? That was a good memory. Miss Branstein, thank you so much for this. I hope we can do this again sometime. This was such a pleasure. I'll see you on the red carpet. Bye. Knockers up. Knockers up. Yes, here's to it. <laughs> 